If you have your Bibles open to the passages we Greg read, Mark 4. My favorite Sunday of the month tends to be communion. For many reasons, but it says and shows us something that maybe we can't see in words. Something happens visually. So let's uh, let's pray that we would hear and see what God have eyes to see what God would show us this morning. Lord, as we come to your word and your word is bread to us, it's life, it's substance. Uh, in ways that we can't find in this world. I pray that you would help us to see things we cannot see. I pray that you would help us to hear things that we so desperately need to hear. We may not even be aware of those things. But you come now in the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit and penetrate the hardness of our own hearts and open us up to the life and the joy and the glory that you have promised us in your son. And it's in that name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter four is a familiar story. And I spent some time this week asking questions uh, about the text. Why is this? Why is this a favorite story? I mean, why do we all know this story? Why do we like the story? Why does it qualify for one of the top ten for VBS? Why is it easy to remember and we like to tell it over and over and over again? And here was my conclusion to those questions. My answer was that at first glance, the application of the story is what we're attracted to. We read the story and our first glance application is what seems to be attractive. And I mean this. Jesus has the power to calm the fierce and unexpected storms of nature. Therefore, he has the power to calm the fierce and unexpected storms in my life. If Jesus has the power to to harness and control the forces of nature, which he clearly does, then he has the power to harness and control the situations or storms in my life, which is true. He does have that power and the application that he calms the storms in my life also sounds very good and attractive, especially to a society that does all it can to avoid suffering. The application certainly makes for an encouraging sermon, especially for those who are currently experiencing stormy circumstances. And finally, for the most part, we think God should be in the business of calming storms. So this sounds like a great thing, something that God would naturally do. And I think those are reasons why we would think this is a favorite story, an easy one to recount and run to. But I have to say, I kept reading and rereading and asking, making observations that maybe I hadn't made before, like it's Jesus who initiates the field trip. So it seems that he leads the disciples into the storm. You know, I, I preferred the application of Jesus calming the storm rather than leading into the storm. 
I thought about the disciples' question, the question that we all have asked at some point. Do you not care that we are perishing? And I look for the answer in the text. What's the answer? Does he care if we're perishing? Well, it's not easy to find in the text. He doesn't answer that question directly. And in the end, he seems to be a lot more concerned about their faith than their life. And I wondered if that should concern me. Why do the disciples in the end end up terrified rather than relieved? They're in the midst of the storm. They're just about ready to perish, or so they think. Christ calms the storm, and their reaction isn't, Wow! Thank you! You pulled that one out! It's terror. It's fear. In the Greek, it means they feared a greater fear. And so apparently they saw something in Jesus at that moment that was more terrifying than what they had seen in the storm. And so I began to wonder, should I be concerned about that? Uh, The more I thought and read and asked questions, the more the first glance, the favorite VBS story, the God's in the business of calming storms, feel-good story seemed to take a troublesome turn. Now, it's not my goal in the sermon to answer those questions. I just thought I'd raise them for you. I thought that would be helpful to you as you look at the story and maybe serve as a background as we just walk through and make some observations. The first thing, as we look at this text, we're going to remember what's been happening Christ has chosen his 12 disciples in Mark chapter three. He's taken them back to Capernaum. That's the place where Jesus would call home. He's out in a little boat and he's been doing a great deal of teaching. If you look back at verse 33, it says this with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples. He's been explaining everything. He's been a great teacher. He's teaching to the crowd and then he's withdrawing to his disciples and saying, let's make sure we get this right. I want you to make sure you got the point. And a couple of the main pieces is keeping your eyes on Jesus and planting the seed, which is Jesus And Jesus is a great teacher, and every great teacher knows that more is caught than taught. So he initiates a field trip. He says, guys, we've been in the classroom. We've been discovering this stuff. You've been hearing it. You've been putting it in your mind. But now let's go on a field trip. Let's watch these principles actually be put into practice. Let's see if what you're hearing, you're actually able to do. And so I want to make... Just three observations. It doesn't quite go with the outline, so I don't want that to disturb you for those who follow that along. The first observation, and I'm just wondering together with you. I'm going to leave you with some questions that you're going to have to think through. You're going to have to have a a conversation about as you go home. First, chapter four, verse thirty five. When evening came, Jesus said to them, let's go. The first observation is that Jesus initiates the trip into the storm. 
Christ initiates the trip into the storm. Jesus certainly could have said, gentlemen, it's been a long day. It's been a tough day of teaching. I happen to have some inside knowledge on the weather. And I know in just a few hours, a great big storm is going to come up. So let's just get some rest. In the morning, we'll be refreshed and we'll be able to get across this little five-mile span. No problem. He could have said that, but he didn't. And the reason he didn't is because the storm... The reason he didn't is because the storm and Jesus leading his disciples into the storm is not an accident. It's part of the curriculum. And I want to be clear about what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is that this storm, this near-death experience for the disciples was part of the divine design. The storms that come later in the disciples' life, the storms that create a spread of the gospel, one of the main principles he's been teaching, the storms that actually are part of their own death are also a part of the divine design. Look with me in John chapter 12, which is the other passage that Greg read, and let's just watch Christ talk about this idea of suffering being led into storms, being purposefully driven into storms as part of the divine design. John chapter 12, verse 24, where here the last 10 or so verses or chapters of John are all about the last week of Christ. And so here we have we've just followed the triumphal entry, which if you know this, this is part of Palm Sunday. This is the Sunday before the resurrection. And he's spending his last few minutes with his disciples. And he says this in verse 24. I tell you the truth or truly, truly or verily, verily. Remember this idea? The word in the Greek, the word was just one word. Amen. And he's going to say something. And instead of saying something and you responding, amen, boy, that that's truthful. He amens himself before he says a statement. So when you read it, you're reading the the text and it says, um, truly, truly, I say unto you, verily, verily, I say unto you, you want to pay attention because he's giving himself an amen before he makes this statement. So everybody's leaning in. The disciples hear this and they're saying, well, this is one of the critical pieces. And he says this, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains A single seed. A single seed. Who is Jesus talking about here? Who is the single seed? Christ. Christ is the single seed. And he's about ready to walk into a storm with a fierceness that we have no idea of. He's on the verge of walking into the fiercest storm beyond our imagination. And it's not an accident. He's walking into a storm that's been designed before the creation of the earth. But if he die, but if it dies, if the seed dies, what does it do? It produces many seeds. Who are the many seeds? 
You and I, you and I are the many seeds that have been produced. So we're seeds. And what's required of the many seeds? To produce fruit. How does a seed produce fruit? It falls to the ground and dies. You and I are the seeds. We are the fruit of Christ's death. And now we're given a requirement, a responsibility, and that is to fall to the ground and die. Jesus confirms this by saying this. The man who loves his life will lose it. While the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You see, people who love their lives are infatuated with their own security and their own comfort. And they're going to do everything they can to hold on to this world because it's their life. And what's most important to them is their living. I've got to stay alive, so I've got to do all I can to maintain that. But you and I are like a seed required to fall to the ground and die hating this life, hating the storms of this life. And it's all part of God's divine design. It's not an accident the storms you may be in in your life. I make this observation and emphasize this really for two reasons. There's more, but two. One is because people who come to Jesus from a society that's wrapped in them on themselves. People who come to Jesus from a society that's infatuated with itself, which is all of us in this room, including the preacher. Read this story. And assume it's Jesus' responsibility to, to lead us out of storms rather than into storms. We have a society that's infatuated with itself, and we've all come from that society. Our life is at the center. It's the most critical piece. And then we come into Christianity, and we read this story, and we make this assumption. It's Christ's responsibility to get me out of my storms. And that's not true. That is not true. In fact, it might be his design to put you into storms. And when he does put us into storms and he doesn't live up to this cultural packaging that we have put on him, we become disillusioned. And at least two things can happen. We make erroneous assumptions about God. Especially about his sovereignty. We say things like this. Well, God couldn't be in control of everything because he was. He wouldn't lead me into this. And that's not true. Or we just fade away. God's disappointed me because I thought he was going to be this way. And so we just fade away. You may have been one of those people at some point. A storm came And you just wanted to fade away. 
I don't want you to make either one of these mistakes, so I'm making these observations about the story. The second thing, a familiar verse in Matthew 10:16, Jesus says to his disciples, right before he's going to send them on their first adventure. Remember, the whole purpose of what we've been talking about is Jesus has called his disciples. He's bringing them in, into some teaching. He's taking them on this field trip. But for what purpose? To send them out. And he's going to send them out in Mark chapter 6. And this is exactly what's happening here in Matthew 10. And Jesus says this right before he sends them out. I am sending you out. Woohoo! Finally, we're getting to go out. We're getting to really give it a shot. And Jesus leads in and he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Is there any question in any mind in this room what happens to a sheep among wolves? Is there any confusion? Does it feel like he's sending you out into a safe place? Does it feel like he's sending you out to a place that has no storms? No. It's painful. It is painful to be purposefully sent out into the teeth of the storm. Yet, it's the suffering and death, it's the falling to the ground and dying that Christ is going to use to further the message of the gospel. That's his plan. His seeds, his disciples are required to go forth like sheep amongst the wolves and be torn apart. And instead of saying this can't possibly be God's plan, he's saying this is exactly my plan. And as you and I are getting torn apart and spit on. We are dying, we are falling to the ground. And that's how God is using us to further his kingdom. So if you feel like you're in a situation where you're being chewed up. I want you to take courage. What does he say right before his ascension? Matthew 28. I'm going to send you go. And what what is he? He's looking at his little seeds. He's looking at his little sheep and they're nervous. They've seen all these kinds of things. And what does he say? I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you all the way to the end. And so we need nothing else. What's the stabilizing factor, whether the disciples realize it or not, that's in the boat? Christ is in the boat, in the middle of the storm that He has sent you into. He is saying, it is enough that I am with you. And I don't want you to forget that. In the midst of the storm. Your falling to the ground and your death is what God plans to use to bear fruit. Is that an attractive sermon title? God rescues you from the storms of your life. Well, who wouldn't want that? I'm all for that. 
But that's not what this story is about, I'm afraid. I'm not saying he can't. I'm just saying that that's not always the case. And we don't want to assign that to God when he's not assigned it to himself. The second observation, in order to go, we have to leave the crowd behind. Now, if you've ever been involved with Young Life, which a few of you have, uh, this would be a very easy thing to we would this would be a very favorite young life story. Very easy to say, very visual, very tangible and touchable. And you get to this place saying you've got to leave the crowd behind. And generally what you would application you would make is say, you know, the big crowd, sort of the, the negative influences. If you really want to follow Christ, you've got to leave that behind. Which is true. To some degree, you do have to begin to shift your allegiance and shift your attention to Christ. And that's going to be shifting your attention away from the crowd. But this week, when I was listening to a talk about the missionary life of Adoniram Judson. This phrase, leaving the crowd behind, took on a much deeper meaning than that. Adoniram Judson, in 1812, left New England to become a missionary in one of the most dangerous environments, Burma, which is near India. A year and a half before he left, he fell in love with a girl named Anne. And he wrote, after a month of courting Anne, he wrote this letter to Anne's father, expressing his intentions for her daughter. You got the picture? He's fallen in love. His plan is to go on a missionary trip to India. And his plan is to marry his daughter and take her with him. And here is Adoniram Judson's letter, part of it, to her father. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure, her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. You want to talk about a sheep going to wolves? Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this? In hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. How'd you like to receive that letter? Well, the father amazingly said, it's up to Anne. And here's Anne's response to a friend in a letter to Linda Kimball. 
Anne wrote this, I feel willing and expect, if nothing in providence prevents, to spend my last days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, Linda, I have about come to the determination to give up all of my comforts and enjoyments here, sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends, and go where God, in his providence, shall see fit to place me. You see, leaving the crowd behind took on a whole new meaning. Not just the negative influences of the crowd, perhaps your family for the rest of your life. Perhaps all of your contacts, all of your comfort, all of your culture. And I wondered as a father how I would respond to this letter from a man who loved my daughter. I wondered if I was building a daughter or a son or a congregation that was prepared to make this kind of sacrifice. Would I risk my daughter? Would I risk one of you to a group of people who are probably going to put you to death? Or would that just be a waste? I thought about Paul's words in Romans, Romans 8. For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered like sheep led to be slaughtered. But in, in, in all of these things, in all of these sufferings, in all of these storms, in all of this being torn at and teared apart, in these things, I am convinced That we are more than conquerors. And what's the first thing that Paul promises that will never separate you from the love of God? What is it? Death. And so you need not be afraid. Your perishing will not separate you from the love of God Almighty. And it very possibly could be The production of grapefruit, your falling to the ground, your dying to yourself, is very likely God's plan for you and I for the spread of his kingdom. Third and final observation quoted on the front from Sinclair Ferguson. The voice of the storm silenced the voice and the promise of the Lord to get the disciples to the other side. They heard Jesus. They got in the boat. They got across maybe halfway. They knew Christ had said, let's get in the boat. They knew he said, let's go to the other side. He was with them. They had heard that word. And yet the storms in their life obliterated that word, drowned that word out. And even after all of the teaching, after all, keep your eyes on me. Don't get your head turned. Pour yourself into me in increasing measure and you'll get more and more back out. The disciples lost their focus 
And when they lost their focus, their greatest concern became what? Their own lives. Don't you care that we are perishing? They don't come up to Christ and say, we've done all we can to save you. They come to Christ and say, what about us? What about our lives? Don't you care about my life? And that's the question when you get into pain and suffering, you're going to ask that question. If you haven't asked that question yet, you're probably not older than about 15. And I want to ask, what is Jesus's answer to that question? Does he care or does he not? Do you care if we are perishing? What would Jesus say? (laughs) You you just don't have any idea. Do I care? I care infinitely that you might perish. But just not in the way that you're thinking. The whole purpose of my coming is to demonstrate my care for your survival. The whole purpose of Christ's coming is to demonstrate His care for your survival. But not your survival standing in this world. He's come because He's demonstrating His care for your survival to be able to stand at the judgment seat of God Almighty and be okay. Because if He hasn't come, when you and I stand there, we're going to be obliterated. We're going to be perishing in a way that we can't even imagine. Of course I care, but I'm not worried about your standing right here in the year 2006. I'm worried about your standing in all of eternity. That's what I'm concerned about. Yes, I care if you're perishing. I'm perishing so you don't have to. That's what he's come to say. You don't know what you're asking. You see, it's easy. (laughs) It's easy to save you from this storm. I mean, it's no big deal. It's another storm. It's the wrath of a holy and just God that I'm going to stand in the way of for you. That's a storm that you can't bear. And so he says in Matthew 10, 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Do not be afraid, sheep of the wolves. Do not be afraid of the storms, the tiny little storms in your life that you might drown in. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That is something to be afraid of. The communion table focuses our attention to what he has done. 
And I want to ask, do you know Christ? It's the most important question. Do you know Christ? He may be calling you right now. Come. Do not be afraid. There is now no condemnation. Come and abandon yourself to me. But if you don't respond to this call, one day, it'll be terrifying. And for eternity. Come. I've done everything. If you're a believer, I wonder if you're in the midst of a storm and you've lost your focus. I wonder if you're not in the midst of a storm and you lost your focus. Do you know that you're perishing? You're falling to the ground. Your death is part of a divine design. That's what God has in mind. You're not in these places by accident. Are you prepared to leave the crowd behind? All of your comfort, all of your culture, your family, your friends. What is it that God Almighty is calling to you to do in these few short years before your death? These are big questions takes time to process these kinds of questions. This is a heavy message. It doesn't turn out to be the feel-good VBS flannel board anymore. And the best place for us to come as believers in the midst of storms and turmoil in our lives is to be reminded of what Christ has done for us. He's done it all. His body was ripped to shreds. His blood was spilled to be a part of a new covenant. It was not an accident. What happened to him, it was part of the divine design. And no servant, no servant is above his master. I'm going to ask the elders to come forward and help me serve communion. Paul, in Corinth, when he talks about communion, he offers a great encouragement to come forward for those who know and have abandoned themselves to Christ. And he offers a great warning that if this isn't something you've done, you should just stay and consider What are you going to do when it is the last day and the last wave breaks over the bow? Is what you're holding on to in this life, is it going to be enough for the life to come? If you've lost your focus, if you're afraid of dying, if you don't want to be in your storm any longer and you don't think you can hold on, come. Receive encouragement from Christ.
his death and his resurrection.